I went through the worst thing I was, I was ever gonna go through when I was seven years old. I mean, listen, I grew up dirt poor. I mean, we had to save up to be poor when I was a kid. I mean, I grew up in a, I, I grew up in a, a trailer park, you know, six miles from here. And while we were gone that night, he got into a fight with our mom and she laid down on the couch and he went into his bedroom and got a pistol and came out and sat down and shot her in the head twice while she was sleeping. I pulled back the sheet and she was dead. Um, you know, I ultimately said, listen, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna do something great with my, li my life to be my mom's legacy. There are no upper middle class jobs in the private sector here. There just aren't. There are some tech positions that are being funded by Cornell University here in Ithaca, some tech companies, but there's no real industrial manufacturing here. We still have a ton of it in Texas, a ton. And those are our clients. Those are the customers that we are converting from industry 3.0 to industry 4.0 methodologies, and we're gonna use them as the example to how to revitalize manufacturing in the United States. What are we talking about? Story of uh, Walker Reynolds. Oh, the story of Walker Reynolds. Take zero. All right, so Zach has asked me to tell the story of <clears throat> Walker Reynolds, that's me, from my childhood all the way to where I am now and ultimately where we're on to get, you know, 10 years, 15 years from now. So, um, the, you know, I was born uh, in 1974. Um, the, uh, I never knew my dad. Um, my father was a musician in South Carolina, a fairly famous local musician, and uh, I only ever knew his name. I was raised by my mom. I had a half-brother named Jerry, and um, when I was seven years old, uh, my earliest memories are us living in Texas, in Dallas, um, and, uh, but um, <clears throat> when I was, uh, when I was six years old, um, we moved to uh, upstate New York from Dallas. And there's uh, a, this guy wants to pull out. We moved to upstate New York from Dallas when I was six so my mom could run a bar and restaurant in uh, upstate in this town called Groton. My mom uh, remarried this guy and uh, remarried, married this guy named Larry. Um, I only vaguely remember him and uh, on February 16th, 1982, my brother and I came home from school and our stepdad told us to go to the babysitter's house. So we went to the babysitter's house, stayed the night, and while we were gone that night, he got into a fight with our mom and she laid down on the couch and he went into his bedroom and got a pistol and came out and sat down and shot her in the head twice while she was sleeping. Um, the next morning, me and my brother woke up from at the sitter's house. We walked home. We walked in the house. My mom was on the couch. She had a sheet over her, all the way over covering her whole head. And uh, although her own feet were the only thing exposed. My brother and I didn't really think anything was wrong because we're stupid. We're seven years old and he was five. And um, <clears throat> after about 45 minutes, uh, my brother and I had gotten into a fight and I threw a little matchbox car at him in it missed him and hit the tube of our TV. We had one of those big console TVs that 
folded up to show a record player and a stereo. It was a big, huge, like six foot, seven foot long thing. And um, so I walked over to tell my mom what happened. I was really scared. I thought I was going to get in a lot of trouble. And uh, I pulled back the sheet and she was dead. Um, my I got adopted by my brother Jerry, his father, or his half, my half brother's dad, and I was raised here in upstate New York in the 1980s. Um, you know, it's interesting. That's where really where the the important part of the story starts because I grew up right here in central New York, and starting in 1982, um, at a time when most manufacturing jobs were getting ready to. Um, leave. Over the course of the next 10 years, scores of manufacturers would leave upstate New York for Research Triangle Park in North Carolina, Mexico, China. Um, companies like Smith Corona, um, Magna, IBM, um, you name it. Uh, really the only manufacturer, only two manufacturers that I can remember that actually stayed and that's Borg Warner Automotive and uh, Corning Glass. So many companies left the southern tier. And at that time, I, I saw all these middle class families go from, you know, my friend's parents go from middle class and upper middle class to literally working at gas stations and working on farms. I mean, there just were no jobs for them once they left. And it really devastated the area, with the exception of Ithaca here, which is right here in the center of the state, which has. Uh, Cornell University and Ithaca College. Um, there really is no, um, there really are no uh, good jobs here. Um, vast majority of the people here now in 2019 who have good paying jobs here are public employees. They're either state troopers, corrections officers, or they work for some municipality. Um, the, the state never really figured out a way to re-employ those, the middle class and the upper middle class. Um, so I grew up as a middle schooler and a high schooler thinking that ma manufacturing jobs left upstate New York because corporations were greedy. And while I was in college, I was gonna teach. While I was in college, um, there were two courses that I took, that, um, two sociology courses that I took um, that were centered around employment. Um, and, um, and what I learned in both of those courses was that uh, US manufacturers did not go, go seek cheap labor um, because they were greedy. They went and sought cheap labor because they had to. And the reason they had to was because they couldn't capture efficiencies and gains any other way. They didn't figure out how to capture efficiencies and gains any other way. That, about that same time, um, I moved back to upstate New York in the late 90s and uh, I got my first job just on the lake here uh, working for Cargill de-icing while I was finishing my graduate work and I got introduced to industrial controls <clears throat> and uh, long story short the um, I was introduced to German engineering, German efficiency, um, German automation. Uh, the mining equipment that we all had here was SMAG mining equipment, all PLC control, remote controlled. They, they would go up against conventional equipment, which was manufactured here in the United States, um, that was all hydraulic controlled. 
So it was all pneumatic over hydraulic as opposed to PLC control. Um, and that was my first introduction into how US manufacturers had, were not leveraging automation and technology to do more with less. The German mining equipment cost less money and, and vastly outperformed the American mining equipment. So that's really ultimately when I um, was introduced to automation. So uh, long story short, I uh, became an electrical apprentice uh, at Cargill. I went back to school and started studying electrical engineering. Um, after completing my, my uh, graduate work and, and decided that I was going to study automation. Um, so I, I finished up at Cargill as a uh, master industrial electrician and I was a SCADA specialist, a SCADA and automation specialist. I left Cargill in the early 2000s with a plan to become a systems architect and I made this plan I was going to do a slow speed dirty process, high speed dirty process, high speed clean process, slow speed clean process, and then I was going to move into systems integration and do architecture. And that's exactly what I did. Over the course of the next nearly 15 years, I worked in mining, then I went to the printing industry, then I went to the steel industry, and then I went to automotive. Um, I worked for companies like Borg Warner Automotive, Newcore Steel, uh, Vanguard Printing. Um, and uh, once I finished uh, all of my work for the end user, that's when I went back to Dallas and uh, became a systems integrator. And, uh, and that's really where the focus has been um, ever since. Next question. What was it like transitioning into a system integration role? Um, oh, that's a good question. So what was it like to transition to a role of systems integration? Well, the biggest difference between working for the end user and being a systems integrator is that when you're an engineer in a plant, you never get to finish any project. You only ever get to, to 70 or 80% and then it's good enough and you pivot on to the next, the next thing. Um, it, you know, plant engineers are always uh, overworked uh, the departments are understaffed, um, and that's the reason that manufacturers have to leverage systems integrators, because the plant engineers can't do the work themselves, because they just have too much to do. And they certainly can't take the time to deploy enterprise class MES systems, integrate with ERP, and do any cloud-based machine learning and AI. I can't tell you how many plant engineers have tried to do uh, predictive analytics, got started, realized it was a huge undertaking and had to abandon it. So the first thing that you learn when you become a systems integrator is you actually get to finish your project, um, which, which, hold on, let's see who this is. Oh, it's Judy. What's up? Uh, we're shooting content what? for our marketing. It's a podcast. Yeah. How do you know this man? <laughs> How do I know 
this man <laughs> this man has been in Lansing a long time I love this man I love his wife um he is sings. that Bob and Judy over there yes it is, is that let's go over and say <laughs> and hi to Christy and Dwayne oh really hey Dwayne you want to get drunk I told him I said you can blame me man <laughs> Kill the camera, kill the camera. Hey, you're you know? recording you, don't say fuck All we do, part of be the authenticity, man, I drop F-bombs and, <laughs> and the video. Yeah, on the video and I, I do not. Yeah, bleep them out. Yeah, I don't do, I don't, literally I shoot the, as if I'm regular me. I don't do anything, exactly. there's no different. Texas Ranger. Yeah, no, uh, I shoot it, and he says, just be yourself, do so shoot it. Are you going to take him to the karaoke bar? And I've taken him to, he's been, this is. He's been to Flint? How many times have you been, how many trips have you made out here? Third time, I think. So this is his third time out here. He'll be here for 4th of July, we're going to take him to well, Sandy Cove. Well, you got to go Friday to the boatyard. Yeah, well, I heard you guys went this past yeah, Friday, right? Yeah. Steve and Shell didn't, yeah. didn't give us a shout. Oh, no. then, do you guys ride on one boat when you go down, no, or you both we go? Could. Well, they, well, they left going early. Down before us, so. Okay. We want to do that, but they, everybody says you got to be there at like three if you want to yeah. get a slip. No, though. no, 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 no. That's but we'll all tie up. If we could get Greeny to go early, then we'll just tie up. Okay. All of us together. All right. We definitely want to do that. Yeah, definitely. And they serve you right on the boat. Yeah. Just hang Appreciate out. The beer. Nice to meet you. If, if we finish in time, we'll come back over. Okay. There you go. You find one of those things. Doesn't have to travel all that far, and I'll video you. That's right. <laughs> I can't stick, I can't so, stick behind you. So Hayden, Hayden says that he wants to to do the filming too. Eleven. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, he's probably a natural. He's uh, he's really good at it. He actually shoots whiteboard videos and stuff. It's funny. Aww. It's kind of embarrassing. You guys saw this, man. I feel bad. See y'all. <laughs> um. Wait. What? So what were we? Okay. So we were talking about, um, you had kind of just finished your story. We were talking about system integration. Okay. How oh, oh, difference. What's the difference between being a plant engineer and a system integrator? Right. Right. Okay. System integrator finishes the job, but you know, you got that infamous punch list. And Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as I was saying, the fundamental difference between being an SI and being a plant engineer is that a systems integrator actually gets to finish the job. Um, here's the other advantage of being a systems integrator over being a plant engineer. As a plant engineer, you, you really get an opportunity to master the process and master the workflow of your business. But a systems integrator, uh, a, systems a systems integrator is the one that gets all the cultural diffusion because they're exposed to so many different um, they're exposed to so many different processes, business processes and industrial processes. So anyway, next question. So how did what happened to your mom impact your, the arc of your career? So that's a question. So, you know, how did what happened to my mom impact my career? Well, um, there's really three elements to that. Number one, um, one of the things that always, has always stuck with me is that um, you know 10 minutes before my mom died she had no idea she was living her last 10 minutes and so I've always I've lived my entire life knowing that and so 
for the most part, I don't worry about long-term ramifications of interpersonal react, uh, interpersonal interactions. What's up, Hunter? Not much. How's it going, man? Um, that's number one. Uh, number two, um, you know, the my stepfather who killed my mother, his lawyer didn't say a lot of very nice things about my mom in court, and. Uh, and there weren't a whole lot of people who stood up to speak for her. And when I found that out later on in life, you know, I ultimately said, listen, I'm going to be, I'm going to do something great with my, li my life to be my mom's legacy. Um, and that really has driven me to uh, succeed, um, for sure. Uh, number three, um, I went through the worst thing I was, I was ever going to go through when I was seven years old. Uh, imagine that. Imagine that you, you, you're a teenager, you are a high school student, you're in college, you go through all the challenges you go through in college, you go through all the challenges that you're going to go through in your 20s and your first job and everything, and you do that knowing that you went, the worst thing that you're ever going to go through in your life, you went through when you were seven. It, all challenges that you face pale in comparison. And so when people ask me, um, when people ask me, you know, how is it I can be the way that I am? That um, how can I take the risks that I take? How can I take the positions I take? Um, how can I uh, advance uh, advance our industry just through sheer force of will? You know, without building these massive coalitions to to start, I just do it through sheer force of will. The, it's because I really don't spend a whole lot of time concerning myself with people who don't like me. When if, if I rub someone the wrong way, I, I really don't think twice about that at all because I, I feel like I have this I'm, I have this higher purpose, this higher mission. Would you change the past if you could? No, definitely not. Would I change the past? No. I mean, you know, it's a it's a very romantic idea to to uh, you know, to think, hey, if I could go back, would I have my mom not get murdered and have us find her? Um, the answer is no. I mean, my heart says, yeah, of course, I would have loved to have grown up with my my mother, but going through that made me into who I am, and I, I feel like that happened for a reason. You know, it. Um, you know, I, I don't believe that the Lord gives us anything more than we can handle. And if it had to happen to someone, I'm okay with it happening to me because I could handle it. But I wouldn't go back and change it if I could. And my wife and I have talked about that a lot of times. A lot, actually. You know, that, that uh, we are who we are because of the, the experiences that we, uh, we go through. You know, uh, how we react to success doesn't define us. It's how we react to challenges. That's what defines us as a human being. Um, it's not our mistakes, it's how we respond to mistakes that defines who we are as human beings. And, and again, you know, there, there's like a, you know, this, this video it wasn't even my idea, this was your idea. You know, you think that this is an important message for our audience to hear. Um, and, on, and there's one part of me that agrees with you, right? I trust your judgment, that's why I'm doing it, you know. There's one part of me that agrees with you that this is an important message because no question what I went through as a kid, all the challenges I faced, 
they have defined who I am as a professional. There's no, no question about that. Um, but on the other hand... You don't dwell on it. Yeah, I don't really think about it that often. Um, it's just not, you know, I'm focused on our mission. Um, and uh, and, it, and it's the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning and the last thing I think about when I go, go to bed at night. You know, A, did I put the work in today? B, did I advance our cause? You know, are we really moving the needle? I ask that question. Are we really influencing the industry? Are we really convincing systems integrators, end users, and OEMs to le leverage technology to do more with less? I ask myself that question every single day. And saving and creating middle class jobs. And well, saving and creating middle class jobs in the U.S. is going to take care of itself if we're able to change the industry. It's going to take care of itself. You want to know why? Because when manufacturers start leveraging Industry 4.0, when they start leveraging IIoT, when they start leveraging machine learning and AI, when they start doing these closed loop control, you're gonna need operations analysts, you're not gonna need cheap labor to, to put together widgets. You're gonna need uh, highly trained, highly educated professionals to do your operations analysts in your manufacturing environments. And we're gonna be bringing more and more of those manufacturing facilities back into the United States. More creative jobs. That's right. Much more creative jobs, uh, higher, jo paying jobs. higher paying jobs, um, uh, much more. These are professional positions. Um, those, those are the positions that we're going to be bringing to the U.S. Um, and when people ask, you know, what are the jobs, you know, is automation going to take away jobs? The answer is yes. Automation is going to take away all the right jobs, and it's going to create all the right jobs. Um, and the naysayers who say that automation is going to fundamentally change, happening since the dawn of time. you know, that's right. Um, this is advancement. You know, that's what this is. This is this is the evolution of um, our society. This is the evolution of manufacturing. It's the evolution of industry. But products still have to be made. Right. Products still have to be shipped. Uh, salespeople still have to um, market. Um, the, and, and right now, there are more manufacturing facilities outside of the United States than there are in the United States. Let's let's imagine for a moment. Let's imagine for a moment that the United States contains is a leader in the advancement of industrial technology. That is leveraging IIoT, right? Let's say the U.S. leads that venture. Well, guess what? We become the mecca. We become the mecca. Our, it's our universities who are training people to be operations analysts who are going to, who are going to be converting the optimal decisions that come back from AI into transactions on the plant floor. The United States is going to become a mecca for those positions. Okay, and I mean, and ultimately that is the, that is the evolution. You know, if, if manufacturers in the U.S. continue to try and do more with less by getting by, and the less is cheaper labor. Right? There's, when, you say, when we say do more with less, what do we mean? What we mean is let's produce more for, for less cost. Well, manufacturers over the last 30 years have been focused on lowering labor cost. So they've gotten that, they, those efficiency gains through getting super cheap labor, right? Well, the reality is, is that uh, people in Mexico are costing more and more money every day. And people in China are costing more and more money every day as those economies, as those emerging economies um, transition from where the U.S. was in 1900 to where the U.S. was in 1980. 
those, the, the Mexican economies and the Chinese economies are evolving in the exact same way, right? The, the reality is, is that they're not capturing um, efficiency by going to Mexico now like they were 20 years ago, and they're not capturing efficiency by going to China like they were 20 years ago. They've got to capture those efficiency gains in other ways. So rather than capture that through lower costs, we capture it through higher production. And higher production comes from eliminating all of the wasted time that manufacturers lose, all the time that they lose in, through poor decisions. And those poor decisions are not because people are incapable of making good decisions, it's because people are incapable of processing all of the data points that have to be processed in order to determine the optimal decision. And that's what machine learning and AI is for. And that's what we are trying to convince everyone they need to be moving toward. And helping them moving So we are, we're not only making the, we're not making the value proposition, we're not exclusively making the value proposition. What we're saying is, we're telling you how to do it. We're giving you the roadmap from going from where you are today to where you need to be five years from now. And, and all of that is driven out of this, this mission complex that we have, right? And that is born out of you know, my personal experiences as a kid, uh, growing up here in upstate New York. How'd you get out of New upstate New York? Because most people, they stay here. I always knew that I was going to go back to Texas. I mean, my formative years were in Dallas. All of my memories, my earliest memories were in Dallas. I always knew I was going back to Texas. I mean, you know, it's funny you, you say, um, you know, Texans are very serious about being Texans. You know, Texans identify as Texans first and Americans second. And I, I was that way my whole growing up. I mean, you know, my name is Walker, for goodness sakes. You know, I mean, Walker Texas, <laughs> Walker, Texas Ranger. You know, even living in New York, it was always Walker, Texas Ranger. And, and um, I, so I always knew I was going back to Texas. Why? Because Texas is a, it's a pro-business. It, it's, it's the land of opportunity. It, it, it you know, um, Texas is where innovation happens. It's, it, it's where anything can be accomplished. And I knew that in order for me to build the type of business I was going to need to build, with respect to systems integration, I was gonna to need to do it in Texas. The advantage was I knew that I could start with oil and gas, which would help fund oil and gas. If we could provide value for oil and gas customers, it could help us fund um, the, the value for discrete manufacturers who can't afford to spend the kind of money oil and gas providers can, okay? Um, and that's really what we did. I mean, we, you know, at Intellic Integration, our team, we cut our teeth on oil and gas projects, huge oil and gas projects. That's where we, we became experts in enterprise class deployments. We then we took that capital and we invested that capital into doing the same for discrete manufacturers. And that's ultimately how we ended up where we are today. Next question. What's your, um, what makes you so, what's, what makes like this successful businesses? <laughs> Um, clarify that. So, like, you know, like, we get New York, and a lot of businesses are suffering here. Sure. In Dallas. So let's talk about like what is the fundamental difference between. Without getting too political. Yeah, but let's talk about the fundamental difference between, you know, what's what's different about upstate New York, and Texas, okay, or just New York State in general and Texas. New York State used to be a manufacturing hub in the Northeast. 
the southern tier, Elmira, Endicott, uh, Endwell, um, uh, Binghamton, Ithaca, Groton, uh, Cortland, they, they were manufacturing hubs in central New York. Smith Corona, um, um, yeah, Smith Corona is a perfect example of how to destroy a company, right? They, Smith Corona made um, the best typewriters in the world. And they had an opportunity to move to producing the best word processors in the world. And they also had an opportunity to advance their technology and, and build the best computers in the world. And they didn't. You look at Eastman Kodak, which was based in Buffalo. You know Kodak owned the original patents for the digital cameras? And Kodak was the one who said that digital cameras would, would never take off. And what ended up killing Kodak, Eastman Kodak? The fact that digital cameras put them out of business. Um, and, and, and what was the reason? Smith, Smith Corona did not leverage technology. Okay? They didn't leverage technology. What they did was they stuck with the status quo. Eastman Kodak did exactly the same thing. But you want to know what the fundamental difference is between upstate New York and Texas. When you come up here and you meet anyone who has a really good paying job, chances are they are a public employee. Um, chances are they are a corrections officer, a police officer, they're working for a state university, um, they're working for a municipality, they're on a highway crew, they're, they are a public employee. Um, if you find somebody who's got a really good paying job in Texas, they are a private employee. They work for a private company. Um, it's no secret, uh, you know, here, uh, Interstate 81 South, um, 81, or 80, I-81 is, a, is an interstate that goes from Tennessee all the way to the Canadian border. And it runs up through Virginia, through Maryland, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, uh, New York State, right to the Canadian border. It splits New York State right in, right in half. The whole time that I was in college, I-81 was under construction in Scranton, Wilkesbury. And that construction took 25 years. Okay, that's not hyperbole, you can look it up. It took 25 years for them to complete the construction on AE1. Um, and now they've restarted the construction. And that was a public project. Um, I-635 in Dallas, anybody who go, drives through Dallas, we have a, a I-635 expressway that goes underneath I-635, which is a, a interstate that runs east and west in North Dallas. That expressway is like 13 miles and, it, and it's underground. It is under the existing interstate and all the construction for that, that expressway was completed in a year. And that was a fully privatized project. In fact, that expressway is privately owned. It's not owned by the state. That's an example of how the difference between the efficiency of public projects and the efficiency of private projects. There was no way for me to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish if I stayed in upstate New York. I would love to come here. I would love to come to New York. I'd love to go to Albany and convince um, uh, politicians in Albany to open New York State for business. What they'll tell you is that New York State's open for business. And they're wrong, okay? And that's the reason that manufacturers have all left. There are no, there are no manufacturers left here. Like people that retire. There are no middle class jobs. There are no upper middle class jobs in the private sector here. There just aren't. There are some tech positions that are being funded by Cornell University here in Ithaca, some tech companies, but there's no real industrial manufacturing here. We still have a ton of it in Texas, a ton. And those are our clients. Those are the customers that we are converting
from industry 3.0 to industry 4.0 methodologies, and we're going to use them as the example to how to revitalize manufacturing in the United States. The data. What's that? The data speaks for itself. That's right, in, in facts and empirical data. So tell us about this point right here. Oh, so this is Myers Point. So we shot a video on the boat out here the other day. Um, this is my, this, uh, this point is my solace right here. I, I can't, I mean, I've come to this point hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, this is where, this is the place in the world where I'm most at peace. Um, and I'm not really sure why, but it's, it's the truth, it's the reality. Um, you know, I used to come back when I was in college, you know, I was a poor kid going to a really good school and I had to deal with all the stuff that comes with that, you know, feeling like an outsider and such. And so I would come back here once a month. I'd drive the do the 12 hour drive on a Friday afternoon. And I'd come here on Saturday and I'd walk out to this point just to reset and re, you know, recollect myself and then, you know, do the drive back to Raleigh uh, Sunday night and make class by Monday morning at 8 a.m. What was the turning point in your in your life where you went from like not having enough to having a surplus? Financially? Um, you know, I've been... What would you say to someone who says that's easy for you to say? I mean, listen, I grew up dirt poor. I mean, we had to save up to be poor when I was a kid. I mean, I grew up in a, I, I grew up in a, a trailer park, you know, six miles from here. I mean, I just, I, I grew up in a you know, this is an affluent community here. When I grew up, it was, and and uh, you know, I was a poor kid living in a great, great town. I went to an outstanding school. You know, I, I, in my opinion, I've been financially free since I was 19 years old. You know, I, I had very uh, good financial sense. You know, since uh, you know, since I was a teenager, and um, I've always known that I, I wanted to do something huge. I wanted to do something really big um i wanted to leave a mark and i wanted that mark to be positive um but i can tell you there were a lot of times where not chasing the money yeah i mean where uh you know <laughs> there were a lot of times where i was wondering where the next insurance payment was going to come from or you know how i was going to cover the my insurance or whatever and and at the end of the day those things always they always work themselves out um you know, I just, to me, money is just so, you know, it's something, it's a necessary evil, but it's, it shouldn't be the point of our lives. And, and it's not the point, the reason it's not the point of my life is I don't live above my means. Um, you know, I think most people would be very, very surprised uh, if they saw how I live compared to what I'm worth. Um, I think most people would be shocked. <laughs> be honest with you. Um, and I do that so that I don't, you know, I put the most extravagant thing I do is fly first class domestically. You know, I always fly first class and that's because I just travel too much to justify sitting in a coach seat. Um, but I don't drive a Ferrari and I don't, you know, um, I bought my Cadillac used and, um, I, you know, I, I live in a modest home. I don't, I don't, you know, I have a modest boat, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I don't uh, I don't wear a Rolex or you know I don't. I'm I'm actually a very very 
moderate person. And I think in order to be successful in life long term, so that you have true freedom to chase your goals, you, you know, to a, to set a mission and go after it, you you need to be moderate financially. You need to have nest eggs. You need to have something to fall back on. You know, you you have to have the confidence to fail. You know, you have to know that if you fail, you're not going hungry. That's important. How do you want to end this podcast? Well, I'll I'll end it by saying. Um, of all the podcasts that we've done, this is definitely the most uncomfortable one I've ever done. Um, I think it's valuable. I think you're right. It, it probably is valuable. Um, I hope it doesn't come across as like contrived or whatever. But you know, it, it definitely, this was definitely much harder than I thought it would be. You you you, you went over your uh, your story really quickly. I'll say that. Yeah, I I, mean, I did. Gotta be uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I did. I went over the, you know, I'm not sure if I'm being honest with you, I'm not really sure why anyone would care what my story is. I, I, I understand why people would care about certain elements of my story, but I'm not sure why anyone would care about the full arc of the story. You know, there's a guy who I went to high school with who reached out to me a couple of years ago. Um, and I won't mention his name just because I didn't get permission to mention his name. I'm sure he wouldn't care. But um, anyway, he reached out to me a few years ago saying, hey, listen, you know, you, you have a compelling story, one that should be told about, um, you know, about how, uh, how we individually can define success and achieve that, right? And he... He said, you know, I would really like to write that book, ghostwrite the book for you in the vein of Hillbilly Elegy, right? And, um, and for those of you who haven't read Hillbilly Elegy, it's essentially a, a, rags the, a, a true rags the riches story, right? About, um, you know, about a guy who leaves uh, the mountains of West Virginia to become a, um, you know, a super successful, I think, a lawyer and tech entrepreneur in, in D.C. or something. But anyway, um, he he came and visited this guy came and visited with me and we you know we spent a couple of days together in our office in dallas and discussed you know about telling this story and i was tentatively on board for it but i in the end i just decided the same thing i'm not sure anyone is gonna you would i'm not even sure why it would matter to tell yeah, the story that's why you trust me man. yeah and so i trust you so that's why i'm i'm letting you talk me into doing this particular podcast but Anyway, um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Thank you, dude. Yeah, man. <clears throat>